Earth Hermes Podcast, Ex Libris Edition. Welcome to Books and Events from the World of the Western Esoteric Tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to the October edition of the Ex Libris version for the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf. I have, as always, the pleasure of being your host. Today is October 31st, 2019. So it's just about October still, and we just made it to launch this edition before the month ends. Initially, I planned to issue this episode already four days ago on Sunday, as usual. But then, some technical problems with the RSS feed, which pulls this podcast onto all our distribution outlets, and it may be decided to wait because one of our major distribution outlets was not working with the feed, and I wanted this problem to be solved before launching this episode to be sure that you do not experience technical frustration. So the issue is not completely solved yet, but I'm now sufficiently assured that this episode will find its way to you without hassle. So here we are, and I'm sorry for the delay anyway. If you're new to Thothermy's Hello among an audience that is increasing week by week. This podcast produces in its regular episodes interviews with important figures and authors from the world of the Western esoteric tradition. The monthly Ex Libris episode is a supplementary show where we feature books and events from that same area and field. You can find us, including all earlier episodes and the show notes, which I would really ask you to observe, on our website. That is www.thoughthermes.com. I spell that for you. T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. There you can also leave me your feedback via a contact page or even through voicemail on the site itself. You can also send me an email on info at thoughthermes.com. And please do visit also our Facebook page. And put the like, you know, that little click on the Thoth Hermes podcast there. That is, as you know, always important for us. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. If you prefer to listen on other podcast outlets, all major ones are providing our show, like Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio and many, many others. And there is also the YouTube channel for you YouTubers. By the way, if you're listening to us on a channel that I just did not mention, please send me an email and let me know because it's really nice to know where the Thoth Hermit podcast can be found. Please also go to our Patreon page. It would really be nice of you. Either by its link on our website or directly on patreon.com. Search for the Thoughts Hermit podcast and become a patron. 
possibilities start at $2 per show and I would really appreciate your support. And here comes a message from our sponsor. Anathema Publishing Limited Quality occult books and contemporary esoterica Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a triune relationship between publisher, author and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian philosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com And now let's see what this episode has on its menu for you. Again, four books are here for you and three of them are about three very different approaches to make your progress in magic. Chapter one is the first of those three. In a short interview with author and occultist Derek Hunter, we speak about his own version of magic, Love Chaos, and in particular about his new book, Love Chaos in Theory and Practice. But we also speak about the prequel to that book from a couple of years ago. Very interesting guy. Chapter two is, as each time in this show, dedicated to the one and only Greg Kaminsky. My friend and brother Greg, founder of one of the greatest podcasts in our field, Occult of Personality, he talks to us about the book that he also co-edited. It is a collection of short stories by Alan Blackwell, and it is called 26 Gates. In Chapter 3, Ursula Cherini from Salzburg is back. You remember she presented already a book to us in our August edition, and today she's back with talk about another approach to magical training, a book by Brianna Saucy, which is called Making Magic. Ursula read this book for us and she will talk to me about it. And finally, as always in chapter 4, I talk to an author about the recent of his works in a 20-minute interview. And this time, again, a special approach to magic and I use the occasion of the launch of his new work, The Magic of Art, to speak with Taylor Elwood. I guess Taylor does not need to be introduced to most of you. He lives on America's West Coast and he is to me a highly interesting practitioner who has a lot to say. Do not miss this talk. I may remind you that if your podcast app allows it, you may use our chapter marks to jump directly back and forth to those chapters that interest you. But best would of course be if you listened just to the whole show. Before we now start, as always, I would like to play a piece of music. Today I'm going to play a song that is almost a classic for many of us here in the occult tradition. It's the song Magic by American singer-songwriter Gypsy. 
I know I played that song already once over two years ago in one of my very first regular episodes, but I just like it so much and I think many of you do as well. So here we go with this lovely piece of music and right after that there comes immediately our chapter one of today. Use your in 
Chapter 1. It is a pleasure to welcome now for this Ex Libris edition of the Thought Hermes podcast, Derek Hunter, who is speaking to us from the Pacific Coast in the USA. Good morning to you over there. Yes, good morning to you, Rudolf. Thank you for, uh, for having me on here. Of course, the pleasure. The occasion, Derek, why we are speaking today is a book that you released uh, not not long ago called Love Chaos in Theory and Practice. And it is the sequel, if I'm right, of a book that uh, was published five years earlier in 2014 by the name of Love Chaos. You have published other things in between, but it's mainly about those two books and especially about the about the one that came out recently, Love Chaos in theory and practice that we are going to talk uh, today on this Ex Libris edition. Um, so both bear the name Love Chaos in their title. So I think Love Chaos, we need to explain to our audience first, or you should explain, Derek, a little bit of your personal background very briefly and about Love Chaos mainly, what it is. It's your invention, if we can say it like that. I'll leave you explain it by yourself. Um, tell us about Derek Hunter and Love Chaos. Yes, well, I, it's, I think it's really um, important to understand what, what Love Chaos is, is that it is a uh, seeing the world, seeing existence itself, it, the nature of existence is inherently chaotic. It is inherently unpredictable, uh, which does not mean that there can't be um, experiences or times when things are predictable or things are controllable, but um, that is, is part of its inherent nature is that um, one doesn't know when uh, things can happen in such a way where um, it's out of our hands and because it, it, it can happen at any moment. Um, and so rather than to fight against that unpredictability, Love Chaos seeks to work within it uh, and, and, and the, the main sort of motivating force behind that um, navigating and working within this chaotic universe that we find ourselves in is love, uh, love for ourselves mm -hmm. and love for other people. Um, so that that came about to me in 2014 at a really uh, dark time in my life. Uh, I had hit sort of a rock bottom in my personal life and um, and actually originally considered seeking out other um, belief systems, other ways of being in the world. Um, and while I found a lot of value in a lot of other previous belief systems, um, it didn't quite sit well with me. And so that I had al always sort of seen life as inherently chaotic. Uh, and so I felt like, why not create something that I was 100% behind? And so that is how Love Chaos came into being, was that I felt like I needed to create something that was something I really, really felt at home with. And, uh, and that's how Love Chaos came to be. I think you call it an agnostic, non-dogmatic philosophy or way of life, correct? Yes, correct. So, so for, for me, I'm agnostic, which does not mean that mm. I do not have my own practices. Um, I've been practicing magic for the last 10 years. Um, I have my own, what I call my own mythology. Uh, I have my own way of seeing the universe. But along with that, perception and beliefs and practices, which I do on a daily basis, uh, I, I embrace doubt. So what that means for me is that I am okay with, for example, some of my practices that incorporate um, a relationship with like 
deities, uh, gods, uh, higher dimensional beings, uh, I, I embrace the fact that there's a possibility that they may exist. They may actually have some existence, um, but also the possibility that they might not, that it might just be in my imagination. Mm -hmm. They might just be representations of my own consciousness. Um, and I'm fine with either one. I'm fine with that. And I think that a big part of Love Chaos is embracing doubt, embracing uncertainty, and embracing different possibilities. So in, in, it's, in that sense, it's, it's very agnostic. And the, the, the non-dogmatic aspect to Love Chaos is that people can <clears throat> practice Love Chaos and they do not have to, uh, say, for example, have the same mythology as me. Um, just to let listeners know, my, my mythology is being an agnostic, Gnostic, Luciferian. And that is something that I have um, been doing for since I've been practicing magic. And um, mm -hmm. for me, it's not necessary to have that mythology. Uh, one can be a Christian. Uh, one can be a Muslim. One could be uh, a neo-pagan. One could be an occultist of, of various forms and still practice love chaos. The key element is that right. one must have doubt about your belief system. And that's one of the reasons why I feel it's helpful to consider your belief system uh, a mythology is it helps to um, look at it in that perspective, which does not mean that one doesn't have to be, one cannot be uh, uh, a passionate, uh, personally, emotionally invested in your, in your belief system, but along with that passion that you are okay with, with doubt. Right. Um, doubts, that's something that fascinates me in that context, because in a way, it sounds at first sight, but really only at first sight, like almost the opposite to Gnosis. But um, if you delve deeper into Gnosis, I think you find out that uh, doubt is always the engine that drives Gnosis. Would you, would you agree on that? And how would you compare with the Gnostic philosophy? Yeah, well, that's obviously a very, um, seems to be very contradictory, um, embracing both agnosticism and Gnosticism. And I think for me, you know, um, I really feel like that is a, uh, has helped me tremendously is embracing things that can be contradictory, but finding a way for them to work. And so for me, my form of Gnosticism is having a direct experience. Um, it's not, it's not merely only intellectual, and the intellectual aspect is there, the knowledge is there, but it's actually having real experiences that are felt uh, with these deities, with these practices, with daily experiences. Um, so it's not just only something that I read about and that I sort of believe in my head, it's also something that I, I experience directly. And uh, the agnosticism mm -hmm. part of it is that, well, if that direct experience is real or if it's imagined, and I'm fine with either one. Right, right. Um, let's talk about the book, uh, Love Chaos in Theory and Practice, the new one. Um, at first sight, I'd say it's almost, I'm not sure you like that term in that context, but it's almost a bit like a grimoire, or at least a how-to-do book for the practice of Love Chaos. Am I right? Yeah, it's a very um, straightforward book. It's probably the most straightforward mm. book I've, I've ever written. And that was my intention. And it, one of the difficulties of it was it being a non-dogmatic um, practice. It was how do I write a book that is very straightforward and a how-to book without it becoming too 
uh, dogmatic. So what I do is I, you know, the book is divided up into three chapters. The first chapter is uh, Love Chaos as a Guiding Principle in Day-to-Day Living. And then the second chapter is Love Chaos Psychology. And the third is Love Chaos Magic. Um, Probably the most sort of directive how-to chapter is the second one. And because it provides certain psychological tools that people can practice uh, in their lives and daily living. Um, The first and the third chapter, though, leaves a lot of room for uh, one's own practice. So, for example, um, in the first chapter, uh, love chaos is a guiding principle in your life. I give an example of my own life as a counselor working, uh, helping men coming from prison and helping them to rehabilitate into society, uh, Mm -hmm. being a father to my son. Uh, And so those two areas of my life, how do I use love chaos Uh, in those daily experiences as a father and as a counselor, how do I help people basically with that principle? But as as I make it very clear in that first chapter is that not everyone obviously has to be a counselor or even a parent. Uh, It's just an example of my own life, but people can use love chaos in a daily living in in the context of their lives. Uh, And then also in chapter three, you know, uh, one can have any kind of belief system and even an atheist and practice love chaos. It's, it's, it's the only really requirements is that you um, you must have some form of doubt uh, about your, your mythology or belief system that you practice. And that also that you're guided by the principles of, of love and love chaos, uh, which is embracing unpredictability, embracing uh, uncertainty uh, in your practices. Uh, and that may be a difficult thing for people to do, but I feel like there's a lot of benefits to to have when you embrace doubt and and you're motivated by by love at the same time. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, who is your target audience? Who do you think should go and oh, everyone, of course, but who should go and <laughs> get that book? Um, what's typically the person who you would aim for? What who you think you can? help or guide or, or whatever with, with that book? Sure. It, it is really, it is really meant for everyone. Uh, so mm-hmm. what that means then is though, is that everyone that is comfortable with doubt, I think is that I, I would not want to force mm-hmm. someone that is not comfortable with uncertainty, was not comfortable mm-hmm. with agnosticism. Uh, then outside of that, then it would also be, it's not necessary for everyone to do all three steps. Um, one can simply just have love chaos as a guiding principle in their daily lives, uh, and that's it. Uh, another person could do both that and also the love chaos psychology, which involves uh, a number of different tools. And then the third part, uh, someone could do all three and include uh, uh, love chaos magic and the different practices of, of magic within their uh, lives. So it, the doors are quite open for a lot of different people. Um, it's not only for a specific group of people. It's really meant for everyone. But again, the, the one requirement is to have love chaos as a guiding principle in your life and then right. also to embrace doubt. There's one thing that uh, really 
to me was very well, well came a bit as a surprise but you are going to explain it to me and the first book the one from 2014 love Chaos, its subtitle says a new religion a new philosophy a new way of life now today on your website the, the religion bit has has disappeared and also when i take the two books and read them they are very different the first one is very aphoristic um has a lot of um inspiring images i don't want to say more but they are very surprising right for 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 the reader um, mm -hmm. so it's and the second one the new book is very as you said yourself straightforward straight uh, uh well like a, a bit like a grimoire in three parts as you just said and you can do parts of it or or all of it um so where does the difference come from from your end how do you see that difference and uh was it on purpose that you dropped the word religion now uh yeah i feel like i didn't want that to become uh too much of a i think uh, an issue for people because the word religion mm -hmm. is can be very negative for a lot of people um, I, at, at the same time, I, I, if people want to consider it a, a religion, that would be fine. It's a, again, a very non-dogmatic religion. It's, it's only a religion in the sense that it has certain principles that goes by. Um, but as far as the differences between the a two. Doubtful, books, a doubtful religion, right? Yes, exactly. There was, yeah, my father yeah. actually, before he passed away, was playing around with the idea of uh, this, this term called the church of many doubts. And, um, and that was something that was an influence on me and some of the ideas that he had. Uh, so for that, I, uh, I, I was very grateful for my father in a lot of ways. But as far as the differences between the two books, for sure, there's the five years of, of living life, of, um, of developing Love Chaos in those five years. And a lot of those things came about in those five years. And uh, as I grew with it and as I used it in my own life, uh, so... It was something that um, I wanted to clarify things for people, um, for anyone that is interested in Love Chaos. I wanted to have a book that was very clear, very precise, very to the point, um, because a lot of my work is embraces ambiguity. A lot of my work's in fiction. I, I love um, writing stories that deal with ambiguity. So I wanted to write a book that was very clear and uh, something that anyone could read. Right. Well, Derek, thank you. I think you you did well by doing a book uh, uh, for everyone because that doesn't mean that it is it is easy an easy read. It is very impressive, I think, and I I hope uh, many people of all kinds of approaches will read it. Thank you for presenting to us today, Love Chaos, and especially those two books. Um, thank you for being on Thoughts Hermes today, and well. Good luck for your next work and everything you do. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rudolph. I really, really appreciate you thanking you, you know, having me on the show and being able to talk about this. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. Thank you.
Craig's choice. Hello, this is Greg Kaminsky of Occult of Personality Podcast and ChamberofReflection.com with Greg's choice to discuss our book today, which is 26 Gates by Alan Blackwell, which is a collection of short stories that I helped Alan edit. Um, and I think it was quite an enjoyable project and it was quite unexpected. So if you will permit me, I'm going to read to you from the forward. It's a brief forward that I wrote for the book um, to just to give you an idea of my approach and reaction to the project. To begin, it says, how do I introduce you, dear reader, to this collection of unusual stories? Perhaps in the same way that I undertook reading them myself, with great faith that the author had something unique and mysterious to impart. This mysterious gift is unique because it highlights the mystery and the majesty found in what might be mundane and ordinary moments of life. When considered in the light of time and the arc of life, they take on an extraordinary poignancy. The great and small questions of life are all bound up together and inseparable. And 26 Gates expresses this through a range of different story types. Now, 26 Gates was not what I expected. From the original conversation I had with the author, Alan Blackwell, about his vision for the book to the initial read through, my experience in editing the text of this book provided me with a treasure trove of reflective insights into the human experience, my own memories, and the universal desire to truly know ourselves and our world. So these tales are in no way ordinary, for they allow us to question and find answers in unexpected and forgotten places. So when approaching this book, when reading it, it is important to be aware of the author's tone and the feelings that each story evokes. And I find that memories arise in response. And I can only describe the experience of reading the book as magical and that each individual story caused a deep contemplation of my own life memories and the choices that I'd made. 
I think Alan Blackwell has provided a wonderful text that has the potential to transform the reader through the method of the questions that it asks. Is the quest for truth to know ourselves, to know the world, is all of that really worth it? While the truth may not always be sweet, the journey to discover it is inevitable, and we should embrace it with joy and faith, I think. That's, at least that's what my experience has taught me. And the characters in Alan's stories sometimes struggle with their journey, as we all do. But their redemption is available in each and every moment, just waiting to be recognized. And that's true for us as well. So going through these 26 gates, I was repeatedly impressed with the impact of the stories. Uh, it was really a pleasure for me to work with Alan as he developed his book. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Um, and again, I think if you approach this book with care, you will find that there are mysteries revealed in and in between the words. Now that said, I believe that working with Alan to edit the book and bring forth his vision it was a really tremendous experience because it allowed me to observe his growth as a writer and his ability to express himself become more clear and lucid. And so that was, that was really gratifying for me as an editor. And I also feel that this book is interesting because it's not standard occult fare. It's not about history. It's not about practices or any type of theories. Uh, what it is, is, and, and I don't really know this for a fact, but it seems to be like semi-biographical short stories that take inventory of the character's situation and progress within life and within the human realm. And it, it's, it's really quite interesting. And I find my, when I read them, it brought me to a very quiet, reflective place that I really liked and was able to do that within a a very immediate sort of pulling you right into the, the, the story and the scene. So I think this is a really wonderful effort from Alan. And I would encourage people to read this book. Um, it's a short read, but it's one that, as I said, will evoke all sorts of memories and allow you to consider 
um, not only what's written and what it's conveying, but how that relates to you and your own life. And I think those types of, of stories are really worthwhile because living an unexamined life ultimately doesn't provide the ground that produces transformation and growth, which I believe is our purpose in many ways. So again, it's not an impartial review by any standard, but I highly recommend 26 Gates by Alan Blackwell. I think you'll enjoy it very much. And I look forward to future writing from Alan because uh, I believe, based on this, that his future as a writer is quite bright. Three. It's now a pleasure to have Ursula, Ursula Charity, back again in front of the microphone of the Thought Service podcast. We have had her with us in Ex Libris number two, where she talked to us in excellent review, if I remember well, about, uh, uh, about the book that I don't tell you now because you go back to the Ex Libris two and look at it. Um, but it's great to have you back, Ursula. Thank you for being with us today again. Thank you very much. So today we are speaking about a completely different book, um, which is called Making Magic. Making Magic has been quite a success uh, in the, on the market as far as I get it. It is, has been written by Brianna Saucy and its subtitle says Weaving Together the Everyday and the Extraordinary. And you have read that book for us, Ursula, and are now going to tell us a bit more about it. Uh, so the starting point of this book is basically the story, the fairy tale story of Golden Ox, but uh, told in a slightly different way. Um, Brianna um, makes the story the center of her book. And she tells the story um, how a young girl dreams about the bad people and how she, um, she, seeks out, uh, she seeks them out to find her own magic with them. So she wants to learn, basically. And she's put to the test four times overall. And each time she chooses, she manages to, to choose in the right way, but not in the sense of choosing the right kind of magic but in the sense of ultimately creating her own kind of magic. So this is the starting point of the whole book. And um, it's very interesting because Brianna um, tries to put away some false assumptions about magic at all. Um, she provides no definition at all, like what is magic basically, which most authors try to at least once in their books. 
And she only describes magic as something very personal, highly uh, related to the magician itself, herself. Um, and she tries to encourage us to find our own magic, just like Golden Ox in that fairy tale. She also tries to explain that there is no real difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary world. So magic and teachings are not found in some hidden arcane teachings or orders or anything like that, but and they are neither practiced by outlaws only. You also don't need a certain philosophy or relate to a certain religion to practice magic. What you need is creativity and the willingness to dive deep and to be honest with yourself. Right. Um, in general, I don't like the distinction, but many people make that distinction between high magic and low magic. <laughs> low being, so to speak, witchcraft and high being, so to speak, ritual, ceremonial magic or whatever. Uh, what is her approach? Where does she come from? Does she take a stand on that or is she global on both sides? What does she do? Um, I have the feeling that uh, she encourages to ignore the, this distinction completely. You know, like she has 14 chapters and each chapter um, is like structured in, in the same way. It's about different topics. So it's, it's a bit like, you know, it's, it's not this chronologically ordered um, system where you learn from the very beginning and then build bit by bit. But she tries to structure the whole book into topics like, I don't know, um, candles and um, like weaving and crafts and um, sacred baths, etc., etc. So she structures each chapter. She starts with um, a part concerning field notes from the everyday, she calls it, where the content is explored on a very mundane, ordinary level. And honestly, all you need to do is to open up your own eyes and look around yourself. So you don't need any... Um, any tools, anything to work with in the literal sense. You just need to observe your environment and you need to be honest and you need a journal and a pen, that's all. Right. She also proposes in each chapter um, two rituals, which yes. are adapted to the content of that chapter. Exactly. Um, so are those ritual is this book a bit also like a grimoire do you feel it like that or is it just an instruction on how you develop your own grimoire mm, for me it's more like a, an instructional manual how to develop develop our own uh, grimoire so it's not in a grimoire in a strict sense not as we are used to it you know um with some rituals you need one or two things from the kitchen for example some herbs maybe or sometimes it's nice to have a talisman in your hands just to open up some gateways for yourself personally but again this is not nothing that's um that's essential what's really essential is only the journal and the pen and the willingness to be honest and to write so people who don't like to keep a journal might have a difficult time with that. But 
we all know how how um, crucial it is to to keep notes. I, I was going to say, if people who don't like to write a journal were going to have a problem with magic in general, I would think. Exactly, exactly, because you need to look up your progress. You need to look up where you went into the right direction and where you went into the wrong direction. Maybe. Yeah. Personal question: How how often do you in your manual in your journal? go back and read do you do it often or is it is it just pretty much yeah yeah because yeah, I, yeah. i funny enough i don't i know i have the opportunity the possibility and that's enough i hardly ever do it it's strange yeah it's it's funny you know if if things keep happening in a very dense way mm. then i tend to look up look them up more often so each time basically i write down something I also try to relate to things that happened before if the time is like, you know, things are just dense in a way. Right, right. So, but back to the book now. Um, I'm, I don't know, maybe this is a stupid question I'm asking, but uh, this book has been written by a woman um, and you have read it. Uh, is it. Is it a book that is maybe more related to a female kind of magic or is it very global do you do you recommend it for uh, men as well as for women or is it is it rather female oriented for for me personally um it's open for everyone mm -hmm. and the fun thing is you know you start with that book it's not a very long one and you think If you have some, some experience with magic, you think, oh, I know this, I know that. But ultimately, she puts things into a different context and you learn a different point of view. And this is why I would also recommend it to seasoned practitioners, because um, you get you still get a lot of, out of, it, of that, you know. Mm -hmm. Actually, I found myself subconsciously walking around and working with that book, even without the intention of working with that book. Right. You know, right, so yeah. this is something there will always be people who can relate more or less to some. It, it's it's a, sh a kind of a shamanic way, I think. Right. It's, it's kind of this word because because it comes very intuitively mm -hmm. and it builds very much on our own intuition, our own feelings, our own willingness to examine ourselves. And it has that relationship to nature as well. If, if yes, yes, of mm -hmm. course, of course. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't entirely call it shamanic either. You know, mm -hmm. it's just a style of working which is very intuitive, and there will always be people who can work with that very well. Right. Do you think uh, you just said it would also be for seasoned practitioners? But if somebody would be willing to start from scratch. Right? Yeah. Is it also for those people? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's also for people who have, who have never read one book about magic. And um, I think it's a pretty nice starting point for them, definitely. And for the seasoned ones, it's a very nice um, opportunity to go even deeper and deeper and maybe revisit some, some things they almost have forgotten. So the whole book is also is, is kind of remembering the own magic it's not about sticking to doctrines and following others it's 
developing a system on our own. And this is what I personally highly respect and like about that. Yeah, and it's a small, uh, slim book, let's say, so it's easy to take along and take with you. And, uh, yeah. Take, yeah, but it's a beautiful, it's written in a beautiful language. So actually mm -hmm. she's, she writes in a very dense way, but it's never heavy. So you can basically read it in a few days. Um, and, and it never gets it never gets um, too heavy, too difficult to read mm -hmm. or too much, actually. Right. Very interesting. Well, thank you, Ursula, for that report on this very interesting book. So uh, all the best to you. And I'm happy to tell everybody here who is listening that, yes, Ursula will be back in other in other episodes of the Thermis podcast on the Ex Libris and maybe on others. So thank you for this. And Well, have a good day over there. Thank you very much. Chapter four. For chapter four of this year's Ex Libris edition, I have the pleasure to welcome on the Thought Hermes podcast, Taylor Elwood, who speaks to us from the far west of the United States. Um, hello there and great to have you on the microphone here. Oh, well, thank you. I'm happy to be here as well. It's wonderful to be uh, on the show and uh, excited to chat. Thank you. Um, Taylor, the reason well there are several reasons why why i've asked you to come here but um let's say the the immediate reason was a new book that you have issued uh, recently which is called the magic of art and i was given my uh, profession particularly attracted by the title i have known your previous books of course and i know your work um, so we will talk about that book in a minute but before we do that um, i'm sure most of the audience here have heard your name have uh, an idea about your work but they might be interested in how it all started to happen where your background comes from what brought you to magic and what made you do the work you do today so if you will uh, give us a little idea about that to start with Sure. Uh, so I started practicing magic back in 1991. Um, I was uh, actually 1993. I was 16 at the time and uh, mm -hmm. I got into it because I had always been fascinated with fantasy books and I was a total geek and nerd. And the idea that magic could actually be real was was something that really interested me. And I started out with uh, neo-hermeticism or, or no, neo-shamanism and hermeticism, kind of a blend of mm -hmm. them. And then I went from there and got into uh, Sarah ceremonial magic, uh, a la, um, the golden dawn stuff released by the Cicero's and, uh, all that mm -hmm. good stuff. And then, uh, got into, uh, great William G. Gray's ceremonial and ritual magic work and, uh, chaos magic and a whole bunch of other things. And over the years, I've kind of extended that to far Eastern, uh, Taoist and Doshin, uh, techniques as well. And then I've of course developed my own systems of magic, um, of which, uh, among other things, the, the magic of art is about some of my artistic approaches to that kind of work. Mm -hmm. Great. And so you have gone the path, the 
that more or less many of us go, some go it by starting in the East, coming to the West, others the other way around and coming back. Um, but as you just said, um, you have developed your own style and I may cite here the first line on your website, mag magicalexperiments.com, which says, I've always been a rebel when it comes to magic. Could you expand a little bit on that? Well, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is I don't, I, you know, if people tried to label me a chaos magician, I would say they were wrong because I'm not. Um, yeah. Or if they said I was a ceremonial magician or anything, I've always gone my own way with magic. And I've always had people who've given me flack for it. When I first mm -hmm. read about pop culture magic, I had people tell me I was reinventing the wheel or that it wasn't real magic. Well, they're wrong. I know that because a over a decade later, I'm the one who has the last laugh as more and more people practice pop culture magic. Uh, you know, and I've always kind of, I've, I've just gone my own way. I mean, I developed my own systems of magic, whether it was space-time magic or the pop culture magic or my work with inner alchemy and, and working with the neurotransmitters of the body. You know, my, my, I've always taken the existing systems of magic and worked with it, but I've also experimented with it. And most people don't do that. Um, and, and that's okay, you know, but, but it's something where, where I'm driven in that particular direction. I understand how it can work and I can put it together and come up with novel and new ways of doing things. And I really don't care if people think that I'm reinventing the wheel because at the end of the day, it's my wheel and it works. And, uh, and you know, that's what matters to me. It's, it's, that's where I'm a rebel because I'm not going to conform with what other people think how magic should be practiced or anything like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a very good approach. And funny when you say that people label you a chaos magician sometimes, uh, as it, as you said yourself, this is already a label by itself <laughs> again now, as opposed to what it wanted to be in the, in the origin. So it's, it's, uh, time is repeating itself sometimes a bit. I have the impression. Um, what do you, what, what could you, could you maybe from what, where you stand today and the books that we are coming to in a minute, um, uh, express, could you give the audience who have not so much knowledge of your work, an idea of where you stand today? Or if somebody approaches and said, look, I want to learn the way magic, the way you do it, where you do pick him up and start with what's the direction you give him? So the way that I, I approach magic at this point is very much a process oriented perspective. And the thing to keep in mind with me is that I don't just draw on occult resources, but also non occult resources. Like if you were to look at my bookshelf right now, you would see some really interesting books on architecture and, um, building design because I I'm curious about how those principles can be used to design a sacred space or you would see stuff on the anthropology of time or or writing techniques or things along those lines and of course you'll see your your magical fair so if you look like if you look at for example my for at, at the book that I would really recommend starting out with, um, if you want to learn my style of approach, it's called The Process of Magic. It's a book which really breaks down how magic works and explores why magic works, because that's what I want to know. I want to know how and why it works and what mm. I can do to um, to to take it to the limits and what else what else can be done with it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work out there where people kind of write about magic, but they say you don't need to know how magic works. I think that's an oxymoron because they're 
basically saying, well, you don't need to know how magic works, but here, I'm going to write this book and tell you how it works. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, there, there's a contradiction there. Whereas I sure. actually think you should learn how magic works and I want to help you learn how magic works and I want to help you get consistent results. And so I approach it in a way that's very methodical and different from most other people. I mean, I, th I think a lot of people, the way they write about magic, you know, they want it to be all mystical and all that other stuff. And that's not me. Very mm. process oriented. I can, I can take a magical working, whether it's mine or someone else's, and I can break it down and I can tell you how it works and why, and then I can put it back together again and make it work better. And that's not something just anyone can do, but it's something I'm trying to teach people how to do. I actually, uh, uh, just have, speaking of new books, I have a forthcoming book coming out called How to Troubleshoot Your Magic. It's going to be coming out in the next week or so. And it's all about how to fix magical how to fix solutions with magical problems where like you, your magic didn't work the way you wanted. Well, let's break that down and figure out what went wrong. And then let's put it back mm -hmm. together again and make it work right. And you're not going to find that out there in general because most people don't approach magic that way. But that's what we need if we're going to have magic evolve. Magic cannot and will not evolve if we do not apply some rigor to it. And that's what I bring with my work is that rigor. Yeah. Rigor is certainly very important. Um, I sometimes get the impression that other people also 200 years ago, but still today, tried to make the language as complicated as possible uh, in order to make it more mysterious or mystical or whatever. And what I understand from you, the way you work, but also the way I read your books, um, the language is very clear. It's very straightforward, as you say, process oriented. Yes, but also understandable. Would you agree? And is it a deliberate choice? It's a very deliberate choice because I don't believe in needless complexity with magic or anything else. I think that the complicated esoteric terms are, you know, it, it, it's kind of like the occult scene. You have a lot of people who who act snobby and have this occult image in mind where they're better than you. You know, if they dress the right way, they act a certain way, all that stuff. I don't have time for that kind of crap. It's just ridiculous. Mm. And so what I want is I, I want something that's straightforward. And so I very deliberately choose my language in that way. Um, you know, I get rid of the esoteric jargon and make it much more concise and clear and I've had people who, have, who uh, you know, read English as a second language reading my books on magic. And they're like, these are the clearest examples of how magic works. And I actually understand it and can do something with it. You compare that mm -hmm. to somebody who, who doesn't, who, who's, who's written, you know, these needlessly complicated books, um, you know, with, with all this extra fluff and all this other stuff because they're trying to impress an audience. And what they don't consider is that not all their audience is going to understand that or want to deal mm -hmm. with it. And so for me, that, that's one of my greatest points of pride, actually, in my work is that I, I, I literally have people who, you know, don't speak English, don't read English as a first language. You know, it's a second language for them and they can pick up my books and they can they can read them and understand them and actually use that work. Whereas the same cannot be said for most of the other people out there putting work out in the in the English language, which is not an easy language, I might add, to learn no. or, yeah. or, to, or to write in. Yes, it's underestimated as language, but here, here, because I mean, I have many listeners on this, on this podcast who are not English native speakers, and I'm sure they will be interested to hear what you just said. Um, do you think the way you approach magic can be approached by everyone in the same way? Or do you think it's a very individualist approach that one should have and your books or your technique or whatever you would like to call it is... It, just uh, an approach, a way of approaching it, or is it really a step-by-step -step guide? 
It's a step-by-step guide. I'm not a one-size-fits-all kind of person when it comes to magic. So I'm not going to tell you that that my approach is going to automatically be the best. But what I always try to do is lay the stuff out so that you can learn it. And then what I encourage you to do is experiment and figure out how to personalize it to fit what you're doing even better. And the reason why is because when it comes right down to it, magic is personalized in a lot of ways. I can just, I, what I like to do is lay it out in such a way where you get the, the essential information and you can take that information and you can say, okay, I can do this the way Taylor did it, but now I can take it and I can personalize it because he's laid all that information out and I can figure out how to make it work best for me. So, I mean, I, I really think with magic, you know, it's kind of a combination of things at a certain level. There's a foundational level of knowledge that everyone needs to have. You know, and if if you can lay it out there and make it easy for people to access, then they'll do just great. But on another you, level, sorry, could you just give maybe two or three tools or parts which are, in your opinion, that uh, part of that basic level, meditation or whatever? I mean, what 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 would you well, think I'll, is part I, of it? Sure, I'll give you. Well, I'll give you the first one. And it's the most obvious one, and it's it's actually the result. Most magic is results-based. Actually, I'd argue all magic is results-based, even the devotional stuff. Um, You have to have a result and you have to define that result. Some people don't say, oh, I can't define the result. If I do that, it'll keep the result further away. And that's incorrect. Actually, when when people don't define a result, they get vague results. Like if if I say I want a job, that's a vague result. It's not very Mm -hmm. concrete. But if I say I want X job, making X amount of money and I don't want to deal with this group of people, but I want this group of people that's much more specific. So that's, that's one component right there that that people often overlook. Then the other aspect of it is that really when it comes right down to any magical act, no matter how personalized can be broken down step by step. So where, where do we start with that? Well, we look at it in terms of both magical and mundane actions. Our magical actions is the actual magical work that we're going to do. And maybe we're going to do a calling to the quarters and use an athame and all that other stuff. Or maybe we won't. I mean, it depends on what you want to do. But you'll you know that you need those certain specific things. If you need a candle, if you need a chant, if you need other things, then you know that and you put that together. And that's your magical action. But then you also have your mundane action. And this is, again, something a lot of people leave out. Magical actions work. But when you marry them with mundane actions, you get more effective magic. It's just the simple truth, Mm -hmm. because let's again, let's use the job example. If I'm going out there and I'm looking for a job, if I don't fill out applications, if I don't send out a resume, if I don't go to interviews, am I going to get a job? No. Is someone going to come knocking on the door and say, hey, Taylor, here's that job that you've been looking for. You did the magic. I just I just felt that pull and I had to come over and give you that job. It doesn't work that way, folks. I mean, I'm going to burst your bubble here and tell you that. And nobody else is going to tell you that out there in the magical world because they want to give you they want to spin this whole they want to blow smoke up your ass, as they say in America. They want to blow smoke up your ass about this and say that, you know, you can just do magical actions without mundane actions. That's not true. Yeah. You can do magical work, but you also have to do mundane work. And when you pair them together, you get better results. And that's one of the things that I teach people. And that's part of those components. And you notice how I haven't used any esoteric terms in explaining this. This is something that anyone can learn and you can personalize it and all that other stuff. But you need to fundamentally understand that that's how magic works. It's not just Mm. it's not something where you just do something And you wait for something to happen to you. Once in a while, that might work. I'm not going to say it won't ever. But in general, 
The most effective magic I've seen, but whether it's my own or someone else's, is when people do magical work, but then they go out there and they take the necessary steps in the mundane world to do what they need to do to provide the path of least resistance. When you understand that, you get better results. Right. Well, great. Thank you. That was a clear explanation. Um, Let's go to your book series. I mean, the latest book that we are going to talk uh, is The Magic of Art, but this is part of a whole series of books that you have already issued and you were just mentioning a, another book that will be coming out uh, very shortly. Um, well, do tell us a bit about that series of book. What does it consist of and how should, should people do them in a row or pick by the title of what they think is most valid for them? How, how do we go for the books of Taylor Elwood? So actually multiple series. I have um, the How Magic Works series, which the magic of art is part of. I also have um, the Pop Culture Magic series, um, Space Time Magic series, and Inner Alchemy series. So Inner Alchemy series is perfect for doing um, internal work, inner alchemical work, working with the health of your body. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, um, so far I have two books out in that one. And then uh, the Pop Culture Magic series is all about how pop culture magic works, how to take pop culture, which is modern culture, and apply it to magical work. Although the one book, the third book, uh, Pop Culture Magic Systems, is also a great book to read if you want to learn how to create a magical system, pop culture or otherwise. So, I mean, pick it up if you want to create your own magical system, regardless of whether it's pop Mm -hmm. culture or not. And then the space-time magic series looks at how to apply the elements of space and time to your magical work. You know, when you're figuring whether whether it's creating a a specific space in your home uh, for purposes of doing ritual work or figuring out the right time and space for something to appear or working with probabilities, that's a great series. How Magic Works is basically my my quote-unquote basic series. It really focuses on teaching people the core fundamentals of how magic works. And we see that with the process of magic. I also explored in in my manifesting wealth magic book, which looks at how to apply, you know, magic toward those mundane concerns, like having a job. Because, you know, you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of those higher, loftier things in life. And then the magic of art, um, which is the latest book out in that series, um, how to troubleshoot your magic, as I said, will be coming out soon. So that's going to be the fourth book. But uh, Mm -hmm. the magic of art is basically an exploration of how to apply art to magical work. And it's, uh, it's, it's very practical. Uh, I do my own art, of course. And, uh, I, I do, I do body paints. I do watercolor. I do clay. And, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun doing, working with all that stuff, but I always apply it toward a magical purpose. And I actually use my art as a combination of, of art that's used to work with spirits, whether it's creating a permanent evocation portal for working with the spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, or I use it to create magical tools. Like I have a, a couple, I have a, a, an art, uh, painting that I created for the purposes of doing timeline analysis. It kind of helps me to improve some of my space time magic work. And so, uh, you know, you know, I, I, I use art for those purposes and that's what the focus of that book is about. Right. You say there, um, the, the choice to let go of control is actually helpful in achieving the result. That's a, a citation from from a chapter of that book, the, the Art of Magic, uh, the Magic of Arts. Sorry, um, and can you explain that what you mean by that a little bit? I I very much agree because as an artist, I think I know what you mean. But maybe you can you could in your words say a bit more about that uh, uh, to the audience here. 
Sure. Well, what I mean by that is that, you know, sometimes people get obsessed with trying to control every little thing. But when you're doing magical work, you have to be willing to let go of that need to control. Like when I do a painting, I don't try to control the painting. I let the painting speak through me. I let it mediate through me. And that term mediation is a very important one because it's it's not meditation, it's mediation. And it's, it's, it's really about mm. opening yourself up and being a vessel for the powers that be that you're working with. Uh, it's the same thing when you're working with spirits. You know, a lot of people have this idea that they can control spirits. You know, they'll do these, like the grimoires, especially, oh, we're going to try and control this demon and make it do things. And, you know, it's interesting because then you hear these stories about how, you know, like uh, I worked with Bune and I, and Bune bro- burned down my house. Well, I wonder why, because you were busy trying to control him. Mm. It doesn't always work that way. And in fact, I don't recommend that approach. So my approach is very much about learning to, work collaboratively with spirits. And when I'm doing art magic, one of the things that I do is I will invoke the spirit and allow it to work through me. And I let go of control. I let the spirit guide my hands. I let the spirit manifest the art. I'm a channel and a medium for that to be expressed. And the ultimate Mm -hmm. goal of that is that it makes it easier for me and the spirit to collaborate and work together. That's the permanent evocation portal I talked about. Where, you know, you basically have this, this, this evo, you're evoking the spirit through the art. And because the art's there, you, you have a permanent evocation. You don't need to go and do all that work every single time, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so it's a bit of a, a magical technology as well. But I have to be willing to let go of control. It's not about it's not about controlling it to the point where the spirit can express itself. It's, if it's anything, it's about letting go of control and trusting that work. Now, some people would say, well, that's dangerous, Taylor. You shouldn't do that. And I'd say, well, that might seem dangerous to you, but I've never had any of the negative experiences that other people have had working with spirits. And the reason why is because I've never tried to control them. I've tried to work with them. Yeah. It makes a difference. I think that's even, uh, uh, that's even for life, non-magical life. This is very true. What you're just saying, I would agree. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a thing I always say, you, there, there, there's only one thing you are absolutely in control of and it, you are in control of your response yeah. to a situation yeah. and that's it really. Yeah. That's yeah. the only thing sure. you have a hundred percent control over. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. One last question sure, to, 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 to just to sum it up maybe, um, Do we understand you well that all the work you do and all the work you teach is solo, solitary work? Or is it also part of a group work uh, that you do and suggest? Um, The work that I do is primarily solitary. I do have a group of people that I work with, but it's an Mm -hmm. eclectic bunch and it's really more about learning from each other, uh, kind of like a salon situation. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, but I would say you could take the work that I'm sharing in those books and you could apply it to a situation of group work. I mean, in the end, that's going to be up to you to to do that work. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it because I don't work with a group of people. You're going to have to figure that out. But everything's there for you. You just have to do the work and make it happen. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Taylor, thank you. That was very instructive and very interesting. Uh, I hope that many people will jump on the website and get the show notes and find the links to your pages and your books. Um, thank you for being with us today. And well, good luck with your continued work. Thank you. Okay, friends and listeners. This was your October edition of Ex Libris, our special book and event show on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. The next edition of Ex Libris will be our November show in about four weeks. 
Today, I said it's October 31st, it's also the day when the O Culture Conference in Berlin starts, of whom we are media partner. And Ursula, who you just heard, she's there with a microphone and she will bring us a report and original sounds from the conference for one of the upcoming Exhibit editions. So stay tuned. In our next regular show, now already in only three days on November the 3rd, our interview guest will be Nick Farrell, important teacher and author with an especially deep knowledge on all things Golden Dawn, but not only. But for the moment, I need to say goodbye to you now. It was, as always, a pleasure to have you with us today, and I hope you enjoyed that just as much as I did. If you are new to Thoth Hermes, go and listen to all our previous episodes for free, of course, and I'm sure you will discover some treasures there. Now, have a happy son, or Halloween, or whatever you call it, or if it's just November the 1st to you, have a happy November the 1st anyway. For now I say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.